Hello from Austin. Welcome to 2018 and welcome to episode 52 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, my friend. I hope you had a, a nice... Uh, did Were you here in Austin? Because we had snow... Which is, I realize for some of our we listeners, had, we not had snow, news. We had ice. We had, you know, locusts. Uh, <laughs> it's been it's been quite the quite the weather week. Well, for for our listeners out there, it is it is Wednesday morning, ten a.m. Central Time as we're recording, and I, I got to tell you, it is uh, it's cold. Well, it was cold, but it's blue skies now and heading into the fifties. And uh, I, I can't complain considering no. what everyone else is going through. So s- stay safe if you're in the colder <laughs> climes, which is pretty much everywhere but here. And, here. Uh, and, and, we're, and we're, we're both going later this week. Southern California. Steve, why are we both going there? The, uh, the Association of American Law Schools, the, right, the, profession, the membership organization for, for law schools and law professors, is holding its annual meeting um, in San Diego. You know, I tend to think of AALS, as everyone right shorthands it, as – um, an awkward trip into cold weather, right? So last year it was in San Francisco where it was like 47 and raining the whole yeah. time. Sometimes it's in New York. The last two times it's been in New York, there have been epic cold fronts in New York where I think one of those conferences, it never got above zero. It was even cold the time most recently we were in New Orleans. Right, New Orleans like rain and was in the 40s. Um, and so this is actually the rare LLS yeah. where the weather is net positive for just about everybody. Yeah, I, I believe the last forecast uh, next Friday when I, this Friday when I get there, I think seventy. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be rough. Yeah, it's going to be really rough. I, Hardship I, I duty. Bad. I feel bad for us. Well, when next week I will report what happens at the ALS Indeed. section on national security law uh, session where we're going to be reviewing a whole host of issues. Uh, maybe even I'll try to record it. See what we can do with that. And, and Bobby, I mean, this is this is sort of a little a little bit on the personal side of things. But thirteen years ago, this ALS, you and I met. Ah, in San Francisco. At WLS 2005. And of all things, I think you, me, John Sims, and, and my uh, uncle, your uncle, David Vladek, um, had good enchiladas. Uh, I, hey, I took you guys to Tommy's Mexican joint in the in the Richmond. Shout out to Tommy's. That which, place uh, passed my South Texas test. That place is legit. I mean, that place is, is if you need if you need good Mexican food and you're in San Francisco, Tommy's is 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 it. All right, so. Should we talk national security law? I, so so we're already getting to, you know, to The Last Jedi? Oh, yeah, no. Our frivolity today will be first class because we are going to finally be able to review Star Wars: The Last Jedi. So you know, it's funny. I was thinking I was going to walk in here and and we were going to talk all about how you know Karen and I finally went to see this movie, right? The latest in this franchise, um, you know, the sort of the next chapter of this saga, um, with you know lots of sort of reviews in both directions, back and forth. Um, and then I realized that you didn't mean Pitch Perfect three. Oh, you know, I haven't seen it yet. Although, <laughs> Although we have. Uh, well, you know, I you probably will see you, it sooner or later. Much. I, I have dropped my uh, oldest daughter off to see it, so she and her friends have seen it, and they gave it a, two thumbs up. Really? Oh, Riley and I have to talk then because – I'll bring her on. Oh, for... <laughs> Pitch, Pitch Perfect 3, uh, just a short short Pitch Perfect 3 recap. It's like they, they got about a third of the way into the movie and ran out of energy. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. too bad. It's like, about I the only thought, I actually quality. thought 2 was really good. Pitch Perfect 3, just, just, I mean, it was entertaining and it was dumb and it was stupid. And so if that's what you're looking for. But there are military aspects. Movie. Maybe we can work it into the discussion oh gosh, here. The mil- yeah, the, the military, the U.S. Okay, anyway. So <laughs> national security law. So it's actually at least, you know, even despite the sort of my nuclear button is bigger than yours rhetoric <laughs> that we've heard from the president in the last Sometimes the nuclear button hours, is just a nuclear button. 
it's actually been a quiet week, right, in our universe. Yeah. No, that's right. And so it enables us to do something that we've wanted to do for a while, which is to uh, do a retrospective in the spirit of New Year's type retrospectives to go back and look at some of the predictions uh, that many of us made regarding what the Trump administration was likely to do once it got in office by way of repealing uh, various Obama executive orders and directives that surely, uh, relating to national security, that surely Trump would repeal many of them. No, not so much. So we're going to recap this, talk about what has and has not changed and why. And I think that's then going to lead to a larger discussion, Steve, that's going to link in uh, some interesting uh, Twitter activity yesterday involving critiques kind of coming both from the left and the right about where we are in the national security law field more yep. generally yep. and the level of attention that the the commentariat, which you know includes the blogs we're both involved in, Lawfare and Just Security, and, and by extension the podcast, uh, where the area of focus has been, which is kind of an interesting topic, I think. Oh, uh, interesting and timely with the WLS conference coming up on Friday, well, this later this week with the National Security Law Section annual panel. I also, I mean, I, I think it's also an interesting point, you know, we're gonna, we're about to be one year into the Trump administration. And so sort of looking back on the first Year. Yeah, taking stock. Yeah. Um, so let's take stock. We'll do that. And then, uh, at, so that'll be sort of a broad, mega issue type of focus. And then for our next segment, for the second item today, we'll go real narrow with a case unfolding right down the street here in Austin at the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, the court is wrestling with a, a, a dog biting someone at, <laughs> at Camp Mike Spahn in Afghanistan. But it actually gives rise to uh, a, a chance to rehearse some of the uh, issues about defense contractor liabilities and the various Fed courts type doctrines that prevent those from going anywhere or, oh or not in this case, perhaps. Oh, oh boy, do I love those cases. Yeah. Although I will say my Fed court students, um, who, by the way, you guys have two weeks until the fun starts, um, <laughs> they, they will certainly love those cases well, or come to loathe, depending. Depending on how, how much time we have left at that point, we might turn our attention to that other Supreme Court, the one not in Austin, but the one in Washington, oh, yeah, those guys. where some guy who's on this podcast, who is not me, has an oral <laughs> argument coming up in uh, what, two Thir- weeks? 13 days. 13 days. But who's counting? So either either today or maybe next week, next we week. will do a good Dalmazi preview. Uh, okay. Every, everything you need to know about the, the least important case the court is here on this term. That's right. And then unless something changes while we're recording this, um, we'll have a very brief uh, touching base segment. It's our new regular feature. We touch base with two big-time but slow-moving matters, Section 702 Renewal and ACLU v. Mattis. Uh, nothing huge to report on either front there, but the clock is absolutely ticking. On both. Yeah, I think I think by next week we're going to have something to talk about there. Yep. Than Star Wars. So, uh, without further ado, let's get into our first topic. Let's, let's w- without further ado, let's let's have a slow moving chase scene, right? <laughs> that ignores the fact that you can just go into hyperspeed and 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 jump ahead of the people in front of you. you oh, you, you've you've anticipated one of my uh, review comments, but I'll save that for later. We don't want to do any spoilers, right? No spoilers. All right. This podcast is full of spoilers. That should be the title, by the way. This podcast, I, this podcast is full of something. Spoilers <laughs> may or may not be it. All right. So, so Bobby, flashback to a year ago. Okay. Uh, and even a little bit further than that, as soon as the as soon as the election with its result occurred, uh, many of us began speculating. Uh, we're not crying, but there was a lot of shock um, and a lot of speculation about what a President Trump would likely do that's within his own power by way of revoking or altering executive orders that Obama had issued or presidential directives or guidance documents that that were all the president's discretion to change. So surely uh, Trump would, if nothing else, change these things. I want to highlight, Steve, five particular ones mm-hmm. that in a uh, November 2016 post 
I called out as, you know, surefire, these, <laughs> these five are absolutely going to change. And I don't know why I'm, you know, adding myself as a bad predictor. Um, but I, I do it every week. <laughs> yeah, I guess I just By the to... way, do you remember, you remember my Texas Bowl prediction? Yeah, well done there. Thank I, you. I actually think I was pretty close you on that close? one. All right, yeah, anyway. yeah, okay. Um, here are the five that I identified uh, in November 2016 as, you know, on a greasy pole, fast track towards change. Uh, first, Executive Order 13491. That's from January 2009. That was the Obama Ensuring Lawful Interrogation Executive Order. Um, Executive Order 13492, same day. Uh, the review and disposition of individuals detained at Gitmo and close of detention facilities. That's the order that contains the directive to close Guantanamo in a year. Executive Order 13567, that's the periodic review of Guantanamo detainees. Uh, in, in other words, that's the executive order that sets up the the current updated framework for periodic review boards. Steve, uh, as you know, but to remind the listeners, that's the body that is, it's not habeas review of the legal and factual grounds for detention. This is assuming the person's otherwise lawfully detained on an annual basis is it still in our interest to detain them? Right. Do they still pose a continuing threat? Or in any event, can they be transferred to the custody of another country and dealt with sufficiently that way? Um, fourth, PPD, Presidential Policy Directive, PPD 28, Signals Intelligence Activities. This is the uh, order President Obama issued in the early post-Snowden period in which he was at great pains to try to soothe concerns about what NSA is up to in our foreign intelligence uh, electronic surveillance activities. It included uh, provisions that, and I'm greatly simplifying here, that had the effect of saying that when it comes to the information of, of foreign citizens, um, they, they will get privacy treatment similar to what happens with U.S. citizens, which is a, which is a controversial uh, posture to take in some quarters, a much appreciated posture to take in other quarters. And then there were questions about what did it really mean in practice. There's a rhetoric to it. And then there's the question of what were the practical effects. Uh, finally, the fifth one, the PPG. PPG here meaning the Presidential Policy Guidance. This is a May 23rd, 2013 Obama directive uh, titled Procedures for Approving Direct Action, which of course is a euphemism for lethal force, approving direct action against terrorist targets located outside the United States and areas of active hostilities. So, Steve, this is of course the collection of, of policy constraints that were layered in by President Obama on top of a legal architecture that was pretty much the same legal architecture that, that uh, President Bush had advanced about there being an armed conflict right. of global proportions with al-Qaeda. It's a set of policy constraints about when force would be used in what ways, with what sort of approvals. All these things, I said, were all heading, in, at least in part, to the dustbin quickly. Um, not so much, it turns <laughs> out. Not, not a lot of change. So maybe let's run through each one, and you and I can discuss uh, whether we think there's any real change, and if not, why not? Sure. Um, on the interrogation order. So, of course, the, 
the campaign Donald Trump had talked endlessly about, you know, bringing back all sorts of enhanced interrogation techniques. I, I can't recall at this point whether he specifically said, I think he said he wanted to bring back waterboarding, didn't he? No, worse than waterboarding. Worse than waterboarding, yes. That was, that was the line. The, 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 the infamous line was was worse than waterboarding. Okay, so so clearly uh, the uh, executive order 13491, um, which among other things requires uh, compliance with the U.S. Army field manual for all persons in U.S. custody, um, period, whether you're in military custody or otherwise, um, that stood in the way. Now, there is a very specific statutory reason, right, uh, why, why, why this why, hasn't why, changed. Why, why it hasn't happened. I mean, I, I, yeah. think, I, think, right, I think the McCain-Feinstein Amendment to the FY 2017, 2016? Uh, it's FY 2015. It's late. It was, it was late produced 14? in December 2015. Oh, no, so FY 2016. Uh, maybe so. Either yeah. way, it's yeah, yeah. the one that went into effect in right. December 2015. Yeah, so it's the FY 2016 NDA and the McCain-Feinstein Amendment, which we've talked about on the podcast before, mm-hmm. um, which basically, as opposed to all of the prior efforts to limit uh, U.S. interrogation practices to those that complied with certain baseline rights, the McCain-Feinstein Amendment took a different tack um, and basically limited all U.S. interrogations to the specific methods identified in the appendix to the Army Field Manual. So is it fair to say that's codifying Executive Order 13491? Quite. Um, yeah. quite. But, but importantly, not only is it codifying it, but it also prohibits um, right, amending the Field Manual any more often than every three years. Yeah, right, which so, means which means that even if so, so first it says the field manual is exhaustive. Then it says, and oh, by the way, you can't touch you, the president and the secretary of defense, can't touch the field manual until I think it's November of 2018. Can't touch this. Indeed. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> they, they, please, hammer. Don't hurt them. <laughs> okay. So it, that was that came into law on December 19th, 2015. Let's see. It's January 3rd, 2018. So we have 11 months and 15, 16 days, uh, more or less, uh, until the window opens for the first time. But, but, I mean, I think the thing about that window is, right, don't forget that the McCain-Feinstein Amendment also requires certain kinds of public notifications mm-hmm. if there are to be changes to the field manual. So, so there will be some, de- some degree of transparency, although the devil may be in the details Indeed. there. There's, there's, so, but until and unless that happens, there's very little point in rescinding or amending Executive Order 13491. Oh, I, I agree. The, that's the point. No, the, the upshot of all this is there's absolutely uh, still every reason to think that there will be interest Indeed, uh, pressure to change the interrogation rules. That's coming. There's a reason it hasn't happened till now. It's the statute. But the timing element, we're about to arrive at that window. So I think one thing we absolutely can look forward to in 2018. uh, Revisions to the Army Field Manual. Absolutely. Now, there's one fascinating thing. There is a substantive element to the uh, McCain-Feinstein statute. The, the, it's inartfully worded, but there is language in there that I think has to be read as prohibiting change to the manual that would introduce a method that involves, quote, the use or threat of force. So that's an interesting statutory frame to apply to things like waterboarding or sleep deprivation, um, conditions of confinement, manipulation. Mm-hmm. Some of these more obviously look like force than others, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, I think temperature manipulation, for example, would be a hard one to to fit into the uh, use of force framework, whereas waterboarding is kind of a more interesting case since obviously there's a, there's a, there is a, an obvious element of force of some kind worked into it. I think that's the kind of debate that 
if there is to be uh, White House pressure on the Defense Department to alter the field manual, somebody somewhere in the bowels of the Pentagon is going to have to wrestle with which of the proposed techniques that might be bubbling up um, can pass through the user threat of force gateway and which ones can't. Now, interestingly, uh, you know, this does have to go through DOD. And uh, I think Secretary Mattis has has been yep. a, has been pretty strong on yep. uh, non-abuse uh, through interrogation. Uh, I may be wrong about that, but I think he said some things yep. that suggest that he doesn't view that as productive. So there's a potential White House DOD uh, tension point coming fast. I think over the next seven eight months. Well, indeed, they, it may already be happening. I mean, I'm sure that there have been conversations right about amending the field manual, or at least what they can do within the confines of the McCain-Feinstein Act so far. It's easy to imagine staff work has quietly been underway. Um, it's also easy to imagine that this really isn't on the radar of the people most likely to really push from the White House yep. about this, yep. um, but it's going to get there sooner or later. One day. Yeah. All right. So that's 13491. Um, 13 oh, by the way, sorry, yeah, just, just to please. be clear, um, I, I just, I just so in case our readers are our readers, our readers, I hope you're readers too. <laughs> yes. um, so it actually, it's section 1045 yes. of the FY 2016 NDAA. Yes, exactly. Um, and if you'll forgive me for being a nerd, it was actually signed to law on November 25th. 2015. Okay, so, uh, so that so, actually, that's interesting. I thought it was 19. So, so, it's, late, so it's late November. So it's, so it's, so it's going to be November, huh? Hmm. So, so right in the, so, so, so either right before or shortly after the midterms. Kind of a, yeah, that, that just adds, uh, adds a fun element there. All right. Well, um, on the same day that the Ensuring Lawful Interrogation EO had been signed back in 09, so too, the uh, provision that not only called for the individual review of each Guantanamo detainee's case, but also for closure of the facility. Now, obviously, uh, Obama... Closure. (laughs) Closure. Obviously, Obama himself failed to get it closed in that first year and and thereafter. So it's, it's not like you need to repeal this one. I think it's beyond obvious that Trump doesn't seem to think there's any particular need to repeal this particular yeah, statute. Yeah, although, I mean, if, if you recall, right, I mean, there were a couple of different iterations of, of pur- purported draft executive orders that were leaked in, I think, January, right? Mm-hmm. That, That's right, yeah. That had as their centerpieces revoking this executive order. And would you say that they, uh, so those obviously gummed up in the works somewhere. Yeah. There were issues. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any reason to think that it's because of reluctance on closure itself or about the, the other details that were built into oh, no, this? I think, I, I think My suspicion is that there was a huge behind-the-scenes interagency fight about what else to say. And so the resolution was nothing. Don't say anything. Status quo is is what they want. As we said last week, they'll be perfectly happy just to keep these 41 there. Now, now there's an important clarification, right? So so, so, uh, uh, listener uh, Rita Radistitz, um, who's one of the defense lawyers in the military commissions, pointed out something I had completely forgotten, which is that um, Al Darby, one of the military commission defendants who pled guilty, uh, one of the conditions of his plea agreement is that he's he's supposed to be released which I assume means transferred, um, in February. So uh, the interesting question then is, Will it, uh, last week I claimed there's, you're going to have the same 41 right. throughout Trump's time. Right. This is definitely one that could get out because of the plea agreement context. Indeed. Actually, uh, if I had to bet, I'd say that at the end of the day, they may not do it on time. But I think they'll eventually do it. Oh, I mean, they don't want to risk, uh, you know, if, if the day Al Darby walks into court and says the government's refusing to honor its plea agreement. Right. I mean, that, you just don't want that. Fight. Well, and it, it casts a huge shadow over all the other commission proceedings, which although, have enough although, shadows although, already. Although, I was going to say, they don't seem that worried right now about casting <laughs> huge shadows. Um, but so, so, so in addition to Al Darby, right, who would, bring the, who would bring the number down to 40, there are five detainees who, under the PRB system, 
have been cleared yeah, for transfer. They, I don't think, are going anywhere. But those would be the next five, I right, think. Right, right. Because just to be clear, Darby's different because of the military commission plea agreement element. The PRB approvals for transfer, that's more discretionary. I think it's, it's easier for the administration to say tough luck on those. Mm-hmm. Do you think that if they transfer – so there's, there's a rhetoric and optics to this. Um, and being able – I'm sure Trump's preferred position is to be able to say, like, I didn't release anybody from Guantanamo, period. He may he may be persuaded to tolerate the transfer of this one guy because well, of the plea it's Obama's agreement. fault. Obama, well, it, sure. Obama made a deal. Like, yeah, but, but, do you, yeah. but do you think that once this person's transferred, it might increase his desire to be able to say, "Okay, yeah, I transferred that one guy who had a plea agreement or who, who was convicted of a crime, and right. we followed through on the commissions," and, and increases the his desire to bring in new people rather than be able to, you know, be left with the the footprint of yeah. I Listen, shrunk it a little bit myself. I, I, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I think I think the president would be all too happy in an appropriate case to send a new detainee to Guantanamo. I just think that those appropriate cases are not presenting themselves. Yeah. I think that the temperature will, will tick up a little bit if yeah. and when they actually do transfer. But, but, that, but that still that that still begs well begs the question. That still sort of depends upon whether there are individuals in the right circumstances. So what that means is non citizens who we and not some foreign country have picked up overseas. Right, and so we don't have to negotiate some kind of yeah. agreement for transfer that precludes detention. Al- at although not only some, only some. Like if you're in Europe, yeah, yeah you're, you right. can't do it if it's a European transfer because right. they're going to make it a condition of the transfer. Right. But if it's certain other countries, yeah, if it's, it's Saudi. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, right. So, but but it would have to right. be the right circumstances, and it just doesn't look like there are that many people who are picking up at all. Yeah. Well, what they need, of course, is someone who's not an Islamic State fighter, which they, they obviously have had plenty of opportunities yes. to do that if they'd wanted to. Right. Um, they need someone who won't present as much of a challenge on the, This know. is where it ties into the AOMF right. issue. Where's, where's Osama when we need him? I think this is obvious to us, but we should make this clear, that the consideration that's hanging over this is legal uncertainty about whether persons who are affiliated with groups other than core Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or, or you know very closely affiliated uh, entities that have been around for a while, uh, if it's a newer group, if you have an al-Shabaab member, if you have an Islamic State member, it's not obvious yet. And we don't have court uh, rulings from the Gitmo habeas cases that are legacy cases showing that the courts will interpret the 2001 AUMF to apply to those circumstances. Yep. So this is acting clearly as, a, as sort of a drag b- between the practical constraints totally. that there just aren't opportunities. Totally. I agree. Yeah. Um, all right. So that, but so, so that's, I think, you know, the real movement will be, see what happens with El Darby, see what happens with the commissions. Yeah. Right. Um, and then see if, as you say, it turns out the temperature on the president to, to do something more aggressively to reinvigorate Guantanamo. So this next one's really interesting. Executive Order 13567 came later in Obama's time. Um, this is the one that set up the latest iteration of the annual review process. There had been annual review boards or administrative review boards during the Bush administration. Uh, Obama uh, kind of, uh, I would say, t- tweaked them and, and restarted them and gave them more more punch. But they had plenty of punch before. Just to be clear, there was there was plenty of review on an annual basis. Uh, once you get to, to, I think, about 2005, these things were going at a pretty steady clip and resulted in a lot of transfers during the Bush administration. Right. Uh, you get even more, or you get more, not as many, because the population was smaller, so a smaller baseline. But um, they involve interagency review of the files to see if particular people could be transferred. Do you have a diplomatic in- agreement in place, et cetera? Um, I think a, a lot of us wondered if I, I certainly thought this one was at least going to get changed. I didn't think they'd be eliminated altogether. I thought that they would remove some of the agencies that had a, a say in this process. Like state. Right. Uh, well, you, now you can't entirely eliminate them, perhaps, because <laughs> of the diplomatic angle. But I certainly thought you'd see a, 
uh, more of a concentration and the aperture closing a bit. Um, as near as I can tell, and, and this is an area where I want to be clear, we don't actually have a lot of information right now about what's most recently been happening. In, in around January of 2017 and into February, um, there was enough news coverage to show that at least one or two rounds of the PRB did convene when Trump was president. Um, no doubt those were things that had long since been put into motion and no one at the White House level was paying close enough attention. What's unclear to me is whether there should have been new rounds between now and then. I suspect given that we're now in January 2018, surely the answer almost has to be yes. Um, I do not know, and if any listeners know, please please hit us up and tell us uh, whether they have actually uh, missed any PRBs or if it, if the whole thing is quietly going on, right. trying not to draw attention from the White House to itself. That that could be the case. There are those. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton and 10 other Republican senators had uh, written a letter to uh, Trump early in 20. 2017, asking him to disband the PRBs, but there are plenty of others pushing back the other way. And you know, for example, uh, Cully Stimson had at Heritage had said, "No, they, these are very useful tools. You want to have this in the toolbox. You don't want to take on the you know the pressure that would come for right for because not having because it. I mean, just to be clear, right? I mean, a PR if the PRB says that someone is no longer you know worth detaining, right? That is to say that within the within the standard set by the order that there's no longer a compelling national security reason to hold them. Yeah. that does not of itself predetermine the government's authority to hold them. No, that's right. And, and why wouldn't you periodically ask that question, quite right. apart from whether you're legally obligated to do right. it, which is a challenging question of the law of armed conflict. If if this were an international armed conflict claim and the U.S. was holding them under color of the Fourth Geneva Convention as security internees, then there's no question that under the Fourth Geneva Convention, you have to have a periodic review. The U.S. government's position has never been that these are security internees under the Fourth Convention. Um, the claim has been that these are unlawful enemy combatants, uh, similar in status to POWs, but without combatant immunity from prosecution, but detainable for the duration of hostilities. Uh, the GCs at the Geneva Conventions famously don't speak directly to that scenario. What you have is sort of this amalgam, really, of Fourth Convention practice and Third Convention practice. Um, in any event, it hasn't changed yet so far as we can tell, but listeners who know better, let us know. Mm -hmm. Okay, that leads us to PPD-28, Signals Intelligence Activities. Um, I think there's a re this hasn't changed as far as I know. I mean, um, I mean, if it has, there's been no discussion of it publicly. So I think there's a reason it hasn't changed. I think it's because there was enough feedback from those who were focused on the ongoing European Union, United States data privacy, privacy shield um, negotiations and litigation and debates saying to the to the White House, if you change this, you're going to screw everything up. Yeah, you're going you're going to you're going to doom us. You're going to doom these transfers. It's going to have a big commercial impact. Yep. You don't want this. It's bad for business. Yep. I think that type of argument plays reasonably well, even though it comes out of the tech community. Still, it's not just it's not just uh, the high tech companies. It's also the telecoms. Yes, they're high tech companies, but it's not quite the same thing. Um, I think there's a lot of business interest in trying to preserve Privacy Shield, and this is seen as sufficiently important to it to not be worth the candle of changing it. Uh, because, as I hinted earlier, it, it's not super obvious how much of a practical difference this is really making right. anyways internally. You combine that with the fact that there is this tension-filled relationship between the uh, 
intelligence community in the White House right. and, and the idea that the White House is going to go out of its way to try to change this thing to make things easier for the intelligence community. You know, it gets all tangled up in the politics of surveillance in the NSA, which is, you know, not on great terms with the White House, uh, thanks to the unmasking controversy and all the rest. It's, it's a good recipe for status quo. Well, and, and, and I think there's a larger point, which is one you and I have made, I think, before when we've talked about PPD-28, which is that, you know, the, 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 the folks with the biggest levers in the surveillance reform conversation are not the privacy and civil liberties groups, and it's and are not the you know the sort of smart academics who are doing important work, right? It's the it's the it's the it's the corporate sector, right? right? It's, that the it's always involved. It's, it's always going to be you know at what point do U.S. surveillance authorities actually start to negatively impact the bottom line of the major U.S. ISPs and other tech firms. Do, do you think it matters that the the key leadership at NSA because this is an NSA issue at at bottom. Uh, not entirely, but it's certainly big for them. It's still Mike Rogers, yeah, and you know General Counsel still Glenn Gerstel, who's been a guest on this program. Um, you don't have new people who've been put in by the White House, uh, perhaps in part with uh, an axe to grind on these types of issues. Maybe, although again, I mean, I think I think the axe here to grind would have been a very expensive one, and yeah. so the government, and so you know, you need some compelling reason why you want to sort of incur that cost. So grinding the axe is not worth the candle. Metaphors flying all over the place. That sounds so medieval. All right, uh, last one on our list, uh, the presidential policy guidance. This is a May 23rd, 2013 set of policy procedures constraining in various ways um, the use of lethal force under color of the larger uh, claim of armed conflict with al-Qaeda, the Taliban, associated forces, including the Islamic State. Um, It's... There were public-facing elements to this and non-public elements to this. So it's a little hard to say precisely what all the ins and outs of it are. And and it's worth adding that it's quite possible that the right way to describe the situation is that there is the the PPG itself, which says certain things by way of policy constraints. And then in keeping with it, as part of the same larger review the administration went through back in 2013, there are uh, orders in place relating to DOD and findings in place relating to the CIA that contain uh, certain relevant rules about what levels of approval you have to have before using lethal force in certain locations. These things may, we're, we're going to talk about it all just as the PPG, but I just want listeners to appreciate it. Maybe there are many actual separate uh, sources of these rules. Um, what did they do? Well, the basic idea was to draw a sharp distinction between so-called, quote, areas of active hostilities, close quote, and everywhere else outside the United States. So the idea being, of course, you've got places uh, like Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria that for reasons of policy, we're willing to describe as areas of active hostilities. And then, and these are typically places where we're going to have substantial or semi-substantial boots on the ground combat presence, and then other places where we absolutely are actually engaging in the use of lethal force, uh, but it's air power and maybe maybe insofar as there's anything on the ground, um, it's something relatively light footprint, right? Um, so this distinction is drawn between locations, and the idea is when you're outside the areas of active hostilities, uh, it's not that force can't be used, but you're supposed to use lethal force only where there's an, or you were supposed to use lethal force only in circumstances involving imminent threat to U.S. lives, capture, not a feasible alternative, and near certainty 
there won't be collateral damage. That is, that civilians won't be knowingly harmed in the course of uh, going after an otherwise legitimate target. You combine that with a uh, requirement that uh, targeted operations have to get approval, at, including interagency input at a very senior Washington level, maybe a White House level, um, and a further possible constraint involving a general prohibition on going after sort of run-of-the-mill foot soldiers and focusing only on more senior targets. And that gives you the the bulk of the moving parts. I mean, there's more to say about it, but that's that's the gist of it. Um, so Steve, uh, you know, has, has this been changed? A lot of people thought the whole thing might just get thrown in the trash heap and that uh, President Trump would would say, look, uh, you know, let's let's just proceed with a general framework of the law of armed conflict wherever we find these people. So I mean, I mean, listen, we've we've talked before about the sort of the tweaks at the margins, right? That 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 so far as we can tell, the PPG is still there, but that some of the sort of marginal definitions have been changed, right? That some of the sort of you know who has the authority is it the the local commanders on the ground? Is it the sort of more senior folks? I mean, so that seems clearly to have changed. Right. The, there's been a lot of reporting. You know, Charlie Savage, as usual, has all the all the best reporting on this stuff, uh, pushing th- uh, authority to make decisions to attack down to in-theater military commanders has been a major theme for him, and that includes uh, in this context. So we're told that has happened. Now, we do have an acronym change. I, I love this. It's it's not the PPG anymore. It's the PSP. But, you know, <laughs> diff- different different names, same, same, same story. Principles, standards, and procedures. Um, I think one of the most striking things about this story, which unfolded in, in drips and drabs uh, leaking out over the year, was that the, the thing that Trump ultimately signed, I, th- I don't think we've seen the text. I think in October he signed some revision to this, um, did not abandon the uh, requirement to try to have certainty that there won't be collateral damage, but did reduce the level of certainty right. to some degree. Right. Listen, and, and, and just to be clear, I mean, I think the there are human rights groups that have been up in arms about even the the sort of what might seem most, you know, minimal of these changes. Um, you know, these are some of the same folks who were concerned that even the PPG wasn't sufficiently constrictive to protect the relevant human rights norms. I think the, the key is that what we've seen has been tweaking at the margins, not a fundamental revisiting of the basic principles on the, you know, at their at their core. That's right. Well, so one thing that's very important to be clear about, uh, Trump, Obama, and Bush have all been consistent with the general claim that there mm-hmm. is an armed conflict, that yep. it still continues, and it's not defined geographically. Yep. So the whole debate here has been about the overlay of policy on top of that. I do think it's probably fair to say that uh, some combination of the decision to green light uh, attacks that aren't just senior targets but are the run-of-the-mill foot soldiers, plus uh, pushing decision authority out of Washington down to the field, uh, plus relaxing the degree of certainty from from near certainty to more, something more akin to, uh, um, I think, reasonable certainty yep. is the phrase Charlie reported. Yep. Um, those things combined with um, a ramp up, a significant ramp up since summer 2017 uh, of air operations in Somalia, which is now, I believe, categorized yep. as an area of active hostilities anyway, so it's not even subject to the old rules. Um, and the Obama administration had already determined, I think, in November 2016, that al-Shabaab now counted as an associated force. 
these things, and then you layer in the, the shift into uh, urban operations to dislodge the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq from its urban locations. Yep. All these things were largely guaranteed to increase uh, the mm. number of civilian casualties yep. that are out there. Yep. We've been hearing a lot about that recently. Yep. Um, though, interestingly, I think mostly we've been hearing about it in relation to Yemen. Right. Um, and, and not always because of U.S. air operations, but U.S. intelligence and equipment support for Saudi and, and coalition air operations. And, 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 I mean, I think, you know, there's still this huge information gap. I mean, there's, you know, I think structural transparency problems that have not gotten any better, if anything, have gotten worse, right, in the last year. Yeah, I do think there's less reporting about this. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to continue to watch these spaces, but I think the overarching theme there is, is a fair amount of continuity um, in ways that will unsettle those who, who were worried uh, already about yeah. what Obama was doing, um, but they'd also probably unsettle some of those yeah. from the Trump perspective right. who were hoping he would more these things off. more. Yeah. Yeah, it, hasn't, it has not been as much gloves off as uh, right. you you might expect. I, I would I would just say a fair amount of continuity with the exception of, you know, in cases where the Obama administration was, at least to my mind, making progress toward scaling things down, um, halting inertia, right? Or, right, halting halting progress, right? Where we're sort of preserving the status quo as opposed to continuing the negative derivative. So I think that it, this may be a place where we disagree. I don't think there really was any uh, particular momentum within the Obama administration. You, th you think to, we still have 41 people at Guantanamo today if Hillary had won? Uh, I think you'd certainly have most of them. You might, I, you know, I'm sure the plea agreement guy had, would be transferred without yeah, all the quibbling I don't know. that we're I, talking I mean, about. I, listen, I, certainly Guantanamo wouldn't be closed, but I'm not. I'm just not convinced yeah. that, that you would see in this total freeze. I, I think it would be a, a marginal difference at best. But, but this is a good excuse for us to talk about two tweets from the last couple of days? Oh, yeah. So I found both of these actually like really good examples of how Twitter can be useful because they were great provocations. I may have enjoyed them more than, than were, you did. I, I found both of them deeply exasperating. Okay, so the, these come from two absolutely amazing scholars, uh, Sam Moyne and Adrian Vermeule, uh, coming from very opposite perspectives, kind of raising at, at a certain level the same question. And it, it's all about where are we as a national security legal commentariat right. in our area of focus? Um, so you want to you want to. So, so let me that. let me read both tweets okay. and then and then we can talk about them and okay. I can tell you why they both bother me so much. Um, so let me start with Sam. Sam's came on New Year's Day um, and Sam tweeted uh, in response to a, a Micah Zenko foreign policy story. Uh, Trump, the anti-war candidate, has intensified all the wars he inherited. That's fine. I mean, you know, whatever. Um, and to judge from the trajectories of Just Security and Lawfare blog, the national security lawyers have mostly changed topics to other matters. So that was Sam's provocation. Um, and then Adrian's on... Should uh, we do them one at a time? You want to do one at a yeah, time? Yeah, let's... Well, okay. focused on that. What, right. So what, why did that bother you so much? Um, who, who has changed their focus? I mean, we're still here. Like, we're, you know, we've talked about the PPG, like, 17 times over the last year, right? We've talked about the scope of the armed conflict. We've talked about the sort of questions about the AUMF. Like I just, you know, I, I think what Sam is referring to is that there has been a huge uptick on both Just Security and Lawfare blog in what we might call less national security, more executive power and executive norm discussion. But I guess I don't see the latter as having crowded out the former. I just see them as as you know both both have increased their outputs. So I completely agree, and 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 did respond to Sam saying, "Look, we, we still cover all the war issues, and I think the divide is 
they're all national security issues. It's it's the traditional uh, what some might describe forever war issues or war on terrorism right. issues, or d- what we call detention treatment trial, right? I mean, like yeah, the, all the all this sort of like bread and butter issues. Yep. Um, that coverage is all still there, but I think Sam's right, and in, in a follow-on response, I think he was trying to highlight that, uh, or he was highlighting that this was his real point. Um, there is a oxygen getting sucked out of the room type effect from the avalanche of, of Trump-related executive power national security yeah. issues that both both blogs and in our commentary has been focusing on so much. Yes, although I would just say, I mean, as, as are the last 30 minutes of discussion you and I just had about the, your five big things to watch for, right, underscore, I think part of that is not because people have stopped paying attention to what you might call the classical war-related issues, it's because there hasn't been the movement there, right, that might have provoked the kind of reaction that, for example, the evisceration of norms protecting the Justice Department, right, has provoked. No, I do think you have to, I'm a big believer in the general proposition in in a crowded information environment. You have to have forcing functions to draw attention. You have to have some event that can be the hook for the story. We talked about this with ACLU Mattis all the time. Uh, So much coverage once there was a court ruling, so little coverage otherwise. Um, I think this ties into an important observation, though, which is that there is a degree of public inurement um, of a people becoming accustomed and desensitized and desensitized we've been going at these stories about detention targeting military commissions and interrogation for 15 years exactly it's a decade and a half and ongoing and to a certain extent they become dog bites man stories okay but 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 that's that's foreshadowing but but indeed but if that is the sin right i think sam's critique is misdirected because I don't think it's the, I don't think that folks writing. For, I mean, I I realize I'm invested in this, right? Yeah. So so I I don't I'm not a neutral observer here, but I just don't think it's right that the folks who are writing for Just Security and Lawfare have therefore stopped writing about these issues. Oh, I think that's that, right. I think that the writing about these issues has been far less um, impactful and far less you know sort of. No, no, notable than it would have been five years ago when this would have been the whole set. I mean, we talked about how Ben, you know, Ben and I were so happy to have a classic fight, right, over the ACLU versus Mattis case. We wrote about it. Like, you know, there was commentary out there. And so I think if Sam has a critique, it's not really about what's being written by the folks who are paying attention. It's about why people aren't being paying attention to what's being written. I think that's right, except that I, I agree, obviously, descriptively, that we are still writing about these things. But I think he's, his provocation really uh, finds a mark when we, when we alter it a bit and simply say that the prevalence of the executive power and rule of law and you know, sort of abusive norms, that, that whole line of argument, which, by the way, will shortly lead us to Adrian's intervention, um, I think it is tending to, by comparison and by sucking up all the oxygen, including by eating up all the bandwidth or a lot of the bandwidth, not all of it, on lawfare and just security. And in our own discussions, when we go down the the travel ban road at length or the Mueller investigation road at length, um, it just leaves less room for those of us who are in a really good position to, to beat the drums and point to interesting legal issues on the core issues. Yeah. Um, it's just harder to have audience for that. I'm not saying that there's anything. It's not. Here's an important caveat. I'm not saying that, therefore, we should stop covering the Trumpy uh, issues so much. But I think it's just worth recognizing that there is a degree of cost there, though the degree of that cost may be nothing compared to the overall I mean, desensitization. Right. I mean, here's the problem. I mean, so, so if we spent three straight weeks, right, talking about civilian casualties um, from drone strikes, which I think is the biggest 
sort of structural issue right That's now. That's kind of the big current right, one, yeah. With regard to uses of kinetic force overseas, right? And, not, and sort of both how many civilian casualties there are, how they're being reported, how we're defining it, right? Like, if we spent three straight weeks talking about that, um, I suspect we would lose listeners in droves. Possibly so. No, this is something that I think on both blogs where the readerships, uh, you know, are up because we have this other coverage. You know, it, is there an argument to allow that to happen at a certain point, to lose right. some of that readership and well, so, focus more on the so, core so issues? So the virtue, I mean, listen, the virtue of blogs as a format, right, is that they're not page limited. And so, and so it seems to me that this is why I think Sam's critique is not about the authors, it's about the readers, right? That, yeah, that, right, that's fair. That, that it's, not, it's not that a lack of attention is being paid to what we might call the classical sort of bucket of national criminal issues. It's that for whatever reason, right, the oxygen is being consumed by the readers, right, um, entirely on sort of the Trump, bu- the, the Trump-specific concerns. Now, one thing I think we both agree on, and this will hopefully segue, is um, these, these Trump-specific issues, they're national security yeah. law issues at yeah. a certain level, and they're national security issues as well. Now, uh, Adrian, uh, Adrian. Real, Adrian feels that uh, part that there's an overemphasis well, so, on right. this, so not it, because he's worried about a lack of attention to the war powers no. issues, but because he feels that we're basically holding Trump to a higher standard than prior presidents. Right. So Adrian is a big believer in what he calls Trump derangement syndrome, um, right? And, and this is his tweet from yesterday. Just think of how Trump unilaterally suspended habeas corpus, comma, spent money without congressional consent, comma, jailed reporters, comma, punished dissidents, comma, threatened SCOTUS, comma, violated norms of presidential term limits, comma, interned American citizens. Oops, sorry, I meant Lincoln, Wilson, and FDR. Right. And so this got, uh, you know, it's designed as a provocation. It served its effect. A bunch of us uh, jumped in and said, hey, uh, it's not a fair comparison. Um, this got under your skin a bit? A lot. All right. So so for three different reasons. Um, first, right, Adrian is assuming that folks like me didn't criticize those things when they happened, right? Like, you know, why can't we walk and chew gum at the same time, right? So, so it's not like everyone, while Japanese internment was going on, right, or while Lincoln suspended habeas and, you know, threw reporters in jail and tried them in military commissions, wasn't protesting. It's not like the historical verdict has said, yes, that was all totally cool, right? So first things first, false equivalence. Right, so it's not hypocrisy because because at least most of the commentators at issue that, that are in the crosshairs here right. would be perfectly happy to criticize right. those Who things Who the hell too? is defending the, the, the Japanese internment camps, right? <laughs> right. All right, um, second critique, right? Um, one could believe, right, that President Trump didn't have remotely comparable justifications for some of the problematic things he did in his first year, right? So he talks about Lincoln, Wilson, and FDR. Well, that's just the Civil War, World War I, and World War II, right. the three greatest national security, well, three of the four greatest national security crises in American history, right? I mean, so if insofar as you care about justifications right. for especially extreme government actions, I kind of think Lincoln had some. Right. And FDR to a limited extent, although I don't think it justified, obviously, the internment camps. Um, and then the third thing, and this is the thing that bothers me the most, I don't think anyone is arguing that Trump's assault on norms has been sort of these classical constitutional rules about how you can treat your own citizens yeah, during war This is sort of an apples and oranges observation. Yeah, right. That what, that what Trump has really assaulted is softer, subtler, structural norms 
um, that may not be as important in the moment as habeas corpus or um, jailing reporters or violating norms of present right pre Twenty Second Amendment norms of term limits, right? But could have longer term deleterious effects. Well, I think that one area where I think that's true. And I'm not saying this is the only one, but one area where it is true uh, certainly is the assault on the FBI yep. and relatedly the, yep. the earlier assault, though it's tamped down, on the intelligence community. Yep. I think that the de- the persistent presidential effort to delegitimize in, in various ways and to cast as if it's a partisan vehicle, um, you know, the so-called deep state and, and all the rest, I think is, is you know, potentially devastating over time to the efficacy and the nonpartisanship, the actual nonpartisanship of these critical uh, instruments of national power. So I completely agree there. But so isn't Adrian, never mind. So his examples, I completely agree and responded to him saying I disagreed. Um, They don't work. But is he using hyperbole to make an important point about Trump derangement syndrome and at least the risk that because of of the widespread, you know, concern over a variety of things about Trump, many things about Trump, that we will over kill the critiques of Trump looking at policies that actually wouldn't Right. There's a boy who cried wolf element here, right? That that if you get worked up about every little thing Trump does that you don't like, right, when he does the really, really bad stuff, you know, people are just going to look at you and say whatever, yeah. you're just anti-Trump. Or maybe even in a, a mirror image, Boy Who Cried Wolf, or if, if it's a wolf five times in a row, the sixth, times it, the sixth time it's not a wolf, but you call it a wolf anyway, and you're kind of doing a disservice that sixth time. So I guess, I guess all I want to say to that is um, I would certainly agree that at least some of the Trump hysteria has been if not overstated, at least more political than legal, right? And sort of opposition to policies the president has undertaken on policy grounds than sort of violations of norms, right, legal problems, etc. However, the fact that there are a lot of them does not of itself prove that they're not all wolves, right? No, no and, right. No, there's, there's, there's plainly a, a, a plethora. Of wolves. And so and so I think right, Adrian, the sort of the central charge of the Trump derangement syndrome is that it cannot possibly be that a president is this lawless, right? And I guess my response is I'm not, you know, I certainly can agree that there are particular examples of things that have been criticized that probably were legally appropriate if not policy wise, right? But it could actually be yeah. that you have a president with complete disrespect so right, the, for the, all of these norms and traditions. The cash out, I think, for both of us is um, you, you should, we should be aware of, uh, be wary of Trump derangement syndrome, distorting analysis of particular issues. The key thing is always do the analysis of particular That's issues right. on their own terms. Right. Tell me why, for example, right? It is so, um, tell me why it's overstated to, cons- to be worried about the, the evisceration of norms about the FBI, the intelligence community, the Justice Department. Right. right? Don't, just, don't just say, oh, you're just a, der- a Trump derangement you know, victim, right? Tell me exactly why the critiques that have been leveled about why that has long-term deleterious effects are wrong. Like, analyze. Has there been, can we think of any example, and I, I'm saying this without an example already in mind, have there been any examples of something that Trump has done that's actually pretty plainly within his powers that has caused a lot of pushback, including... Pardoning some- Joe Arpaio. Okay, right. Right, pardoning Joe Arpaio. I would, I would have, I have absolutely zero problem. Um, I know that there are people who have tried to come up with an argument for why it's unconstitutional. I just completely disagree, yeah. right? I think the Arpaio pardon was perfectly within the president's power. It's consistent with Chief Justice Taft's opinion in Ex parte Grossman. It's just, you know, deeply problematic to me. It's offensive as a policy matter. Right. Perfectly legal. 
Well, and who knows? We may get some future pardons in 2018 that will let us revisit that topic and, but, and put it to the test. But, but I just, I mean, for you know, it, it, it just, the, you don't prove the existence of Trump derangement syndrome by suggesting that there have been other abusers of norms and rights in American history. Sure. No, no. The, the Me Too, uh, that version of Me Too, to borrow a phrase, um, actually, it's not really Me Too. Not I, me too. No, it's, it's uh, how would you describe it? Uh, what about? It's, it's the it's what about whataboutism. Right. Whataboutism. And, and the thing is, like, I mean, so so is Adrian telling us that all those things that happened in the past were appropriate? And if not, right, then what does it prove that, like, you know, President Trump isn't guilty of those sins? Perhaps he's just guilty of different sins. Yeah. I just, I just, I find the, I mean, I just, I find the false, it's, I know he's trying to be provocative, and he has succeeded. In he has succeeded. Me. I, I'm, I'm guessing. I don't, I don't imagine he's necessarily listening to this, but I think no. he would enjoy hearing your, your angst flowing through the microphone. I'm, he, he like, yes, I succeeded. <laughs> um, it, it reminds me of my, of my meat market interview with the University of Chicago in the fall of 2004, when Adrian spent 25 minutes yelling at me. Oh, so this isn't your first time having oh, no. your blood pressure oh, no. raised by Adrian, um, awesome. and, and it's not the second either. Oh, that's great. All right, so listen. I mean, we're already, I think, 50 minutes in. I'm sure we're losing listeners left and right. Should we? Sort of push off the Texas Supreme Court derivative sovereign immunity issue to next week. Yeah, I think we've covered enough. You want to just skip over all the rest? Do quickly check in with seven hundred two yeah. and ACLU matters, and then, and then talk about Pitch Perfect three. Oh, I mean Last Jedi. <laughs> yeah, preferably the Last Jedi. Okay, on the issues that we continue to watch, um, there are, I believe, sixteen days to go Woo-hoo! on the new countdown clock deadline for renewing Section seven hundred two surveillance authority. Um, no real early tea leaves, but let, let's speculate, Steve, a bit. Um, we do have a looming uh, must uh, must leave the station bill. I don't know if it's taken final to form keep yet. The government open. Keep the government open. So one possibility is that you're going to now see either a clean renewal or slight modification renewal attached to that vehicle, and it just goes through with relatively little further debate. That's mm-hmm. one possibility. Another possibility is, nope, they, they find time on the calendar, and they actually have a straight-up standalone bill debate uh, discussion. Uh, I think the former is more likely than the latter. What do you think? I, I think that's right, yes. Um, okay. I mean, you know, they're not going to do anything big in the next two weeks. No. I, and I think, by the way, it's you know, as the time ticks off the calendar, the, the prospect of there being anything dramatic coming out of the renewal process, I think at most, at most, you're going to see some modest uh, sort of cosmetic tweaks to 702 and, and some unmasking stuff thrown in, but possibly even a clean renewal at this point. We'll see, though. It's really hard to call. Um, and then meanwhile, ACLU v. Mattis, when last we checked in, the district court had ruled. We offered our criticism of the, uh, some of the overreaching and underexplained parts of that ruling, uh, though also agreement with some of the core of the ruling. Um, and we, we imagined that it was surely going to be the case the government was going to move to stay, in particular, the elements, A, mm-hmm. um, immediate in-person unmonitored access to the detainee, and B, uh, no transfer to foreign powers in the meantime, um, no stay yet. Now, we predicted that there wouldn't be a stay until 2018 because right. they were going to wait. They had the time on the calendar, and they wouldn't necessarily like the lineup of judges on the emergency panel that they knew were in place in December. So what's happened? Nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, so, so just to be clear, right, the D.C. Circuit is not like other circuits. It does not have a regularly publicized sort of calendar month division of who's on the emergency motions panel. Um, I'd always assume that they go monthly anyway. They just don't make a big deal out of it, yeah. right? It's possible that that deadline was actually not December 31st. That's sometime this week or next week. Right. So maybe they know and they're waiting. Right. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, I will say I am surprised that we have gotten to January 3rd without anything from the government. Now, that says to me, Bobby, two possibilities, right? One, 
um, they're complying, right? And that we're not hearing about it. And that, you know, the, the deal they made with the ACLU was, all right, we'll comply with the order, but you can't, you know, on, we will comply with the order and not immediately appeal it if you agree to not, if you agree to sort of keep this all confidential. Interesting. Right? In which case, we would have heard nothing. I was about to say, like, what leverage would they have? But agreeing not to seek the stay would be leverage. That would be leverage. I mean, that would be something the ACLU would be, you know, that, that, that would be, that would be a, a carrot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and option well, number two is they are just literally waiting for the moment at which they are relatively confident that they get a different motions panel. Yeah. And, and now that we speculate, neither of us did the legwork to pin it down. But yeah. We, good we job, have, us. Yeah. Well, you know, we're not responsible parties here. Um, we said probably a 10 day, 10 business days or 14. With, yeah. So there there may be as much as a week left on the calendar. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I, I'd be very surprised if by the time we sit down next week, we haven't heard anything. Yeah. All right. So watch this space. Yes. Now, my friends, what we've all been waiting for, if you have not seen The Last Jedi. In what your, is wrong with you? Well, yeah. First, first, <laughs> what have you been seeing? I mean, you, I mean, I mean, Jumanji. Are, are, were you waiting for a better time to go see a movie than the week between Christmas and New Year's? During the ice storms that beset the country? Uh, if Including you, Austin. If you don't want spoilers, now's the time to tune out. Thanks for listening. Those of you who stuck around, Steve and I are now going to review The Greatest Showman. No, The Last Jedi. Pitch Perfect 3. I saw The Greatest Showman, too. I, I, the only other movie I saw over break was Pitch Perfect 3. All right. Well, um, I recommend The Greatest Showman. If you, I do not recommend Pitch Perfect 3. Well, I'll say this about The Greatest Showman. Uh, if you liked Annie, the musical, then I think you'll like The Greatest Showman. Hmm. If you're among those who piled on to Rotten Tomatoes to, to vote down Annie... And uh, and generally thought, you know, the whole thing somehow was was forced. Then I'd say you don't really like (laughs) modern movie adaptations of musicals and probably won't enjoy The Greatest Showman either. Um, Speaking of a divide, though, between critics and fans. mm, There's been a lot of talk of people voting down, trying to drive down Last Jedi. Why is that, do you think? So... uh or can you can, can you encapsulate the critique? I was going to say, I mean, it seems like there's so much to say about this movie had so much going on, right? I mean, so so let me say at the top, I think no one could dispute that it was a tremendously entertaining two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. It I mean, flew by. It flew by, literally. Uh, or, or or it didn't fly by, as yeah, the case may be. Sometimes it rode by. Um, it, 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 slowly, it slowly meandered through <laughs> space. Um, so, so it's like... If folks may remember my critique of season seven, right, of Game of Thrones. Um, if you've really been paying, this is a good, yeah, yeah. A good, good quiz for our listeners. So my central critique of season seven of Game of Thrones was that they had basically stopped trying to be sort of consistent mm-hmm. um, and just started throwing candy to the audience. And so they weren't yeah. worried about like plot holes. They weren't worried about like how you know a raven could get from um, Winterfell to Dragonstone in like three seconds. Yeah, it's just wish fulfillment. Let Danny and John hook up. You know, that sort of thing. do everything you need to do to keep the fans happy, right? And suspend disbelief. Do so you get think there. you think that's what's going on here? There are so many problems with the plot. Okay, but that's a different critique. You, but do you see wish gratification type plotting? Well, okay, so so not 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 of the same ilk, right? So okay. for example, I mean, take for example the question of who raised parents are. Right, which had been a huge sort of tantalizing oh, yeah. thing opened up by um, the Force Awakens. That Rian Johnson, right, the the director of of um, Last Jedi, just sort of throws into the garbage can. And I would say he just throws in the he 
positively relishes the abandonment of that thread as any, as of any interest. Just and, your parents and, were nobody. And by says, the way, and says that Kylo was, Ren. That is that is systematically true across. Yes. Uh, I think the show, including so with with Snoke. Yep. You're like, who is he? What's it right. all about? Don't care. Who cares? <laughs> that that was that was a bad idea. Let's finish it off. Yeah. It reminds me of for those who watched Lost. Did you ever watch Lost? Briefly, but I couldn't I couldn't stay with. Okay, it. suffice to say that um, the original season. Uh, you know, there's a certain set of characters. There's this one couple that I think many people found annoying. There's a very attractive couple. And in, in this, I think it was the second season, there's an episode where the, the writers, they don't just finish, they make them central characters for one episode and then they finish them off pretty, pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people at the time commented that it, there was talk about how those two had uh, not been the favorites on the set. And they were sort of finished off with relish. Um, I think Snoke was finished off with relish. I think the Ray's mystery parentage was finished off with relish. I was like, I was like, <laughs> oh wait, no. And more generally, and in this, I think is actually to me, I think there were a lot of things that were brilliant about what Rian Johnson did. I think the the uh, finishing off the past, which was an explicit theme that both Luke Skywalker and Kylo Ren, right. Ben Solo, expressly talked about a lot. Kill the past, Ben Solo says. Luke talking about you know the, the legends of the past. I'm not here to talk about the past. I'm here to talk about the future. It's it's this was obviously a surface and, and major driving narrative theme. It was one of the two big themes. I think you know forget the past, which speaks directly right. to the fandom, saying listen. Yeah. We're going to we we are letting go, right. and and you know and the great irony of course is that the the plot leaves us only with Leia, who of course dies subsequent to the filming and right. isn't going to be able to carry on either. We fully severed, with the exception of you know where is Lando? Chewie, Chewie's Chewie's still Come on there. Now. No, all the ones don't all, all the quasi non-human. Right. Right? So R two D two and C three PO and right. Chewie get to kick around. Right. Uh, the dude that co-pilots with with Lando from uh, oh blah 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 blah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Although I, I'm not sure I saw him at the uh, at the salt base, so I don't I, know. Yeah, yeah. Do, do, can we call that the salt pit? Is that too much? I think it's probably too much. Um, the, Plus, also the ripoff from Star Trek, right? Because Star Trek, what were the was it the first one or the second new one that opened up on the salt planet? Mm. Well, Where I will say that there was I I knew I was going to make a salt a Star Trek observation. It wasn't that one. Um, when Rose is in the command chair of the of the ship with uh, with Benicio del Toro and, uh, DJ. and Finn, and uh, Rose has her back to him, and he says something, and she reaches down on the command chair, and there's a. As it turns around, yeah. that was a Star Trek captain's chair yes, move, yes, and quite. I think very purposely. So, so, so I have. Let me say, I have no problem with the thematic gestalt, right? The yeah. kill the past, kill like the past. You know, you can you can like it, you can not like it. I, it, I, I'm not objecting to it, right? Because it's it's a coherent frame, yeah. In and for, both for a movie in general and for a movie at this point in the franchise, okay, fine. My problem is with sort of the. Everything else that happens to allow them to get there, right? So, so let me just sort of flag a couple things that drove me nuts. Yeah. Right. Thing that drove me nuts: number one, chasing the chasing the 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 fleet. Right. You the, didn't like they're that? not the rebels. Where are they? They're, they're the, the resistance. resistance. Hashtag. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I liked it. Fun. It was pretty. It was interesting. It was lovely. I mean, it reminded me of like the Battlestar Galactica. Oh know, yeah. No, it was. It was very Battlestar Galactica. Okay. Cylon base stars are right on our tail. But right. But. When did the First Order fleet lose the ability to jump to hyperspace? And if they didn't lose that ability, why couldn't they have just jumped ahead of the 
re- resistance fleet and cut them from the front. I mean, like, you know, this whole, like, they're faster than us. Well, in sublight, they're faster than you, but they're right. not faster than you in hyperspace. You, you seem to have a couple of Star Destroyers once you put one. By the way, has a Star Destroyer ever done anything? Um, no. Um, okay. But wait, so so this leads me to point number two, right? Let's talk about the Dreadnought for a second, all right? Which, by the way, badass, right? The Dreadnought shows up to ruin everybody's day. Yeah. All right. Bobby, you are you are the commander of the dreadnought, right? You have two targets in front of you, right? A mobile cruiser, right, and a stationary base on a planet. Okay, hmm. which one do you attack first? Well, no, hold on. So he attacks the base first in the film, but because he's trying to catch them on the ground, and as they depict, they're, they're in the air. Like as opposed, to, when, yeah, yeah. where are they going from the ground? Yeah, they're going they're, to the cruiser. Yeah, but they're they're mobile targets with shields. So th- you've got you've got the cruiser shielded, and there's no plot point given that they can penetrate the shields. And indeed, later on during the long chase scene, they show they can't penetrate well, the, the start, shields at no, a distance. At, at that distance, right? Yeah. But so so why isn't the first move right to close the distance with the cruiser blow up the cruiser and then turn your attention toward well because plot well because hence my (laughs) objection so that's problem number one all right problem number two right when is it what hondo what's her name the the woman who becomes in charge of yeah right admiral Admiral right um so um I, i have two problems with the whole kamikaze suicide attack on the on the on the on the dreadnought right on snoke's ship right problem number one um, if that has always been a technological tool available to the Star Wars universe, why the hell wasn't it attempted on either Death yeah, Star? Create a, create a big bulk ship, load yeah. it with a Take a Mon Calamari Star Cruiser, right? Put it on autopilot or have a droid yeah. fly into the freaking Death Star at, you know, the, with the exact same sort of fat just before you get to hyperspace, right? Like accelerate to the point of speed right before hyperspace. Right, right. So that, well, you know, so maybe it was a failure of imagination. People just didn't think of it. But you well, point wait, out- no one, no one thought to kamikaze? You point out something which is remarkable about their advanced technology. Still people in the cockpit of all their ships. All right, well, so so there's also that. Um, <laughs> because, of course, it'd be a pretty lame movie if they were really having their drone armies. I agree. Yeah. Well, that, that, they tried that in episode two, right? How'd that go? Yeah. Um, oh. All right. P- plop, problem number two with the with the Laura Dern uh, uh, situation. How about the fact that it's Laura Dern and it's a, it's a recognizable, the same, same objection to Benicio Del Toro. Yeah. I, I like both the actors there. And they actually, I think, both did a good job, but I disliked knowing who I was looking at yeah. as a familiar actor yeah. in this that, particular That, that didn't bother series. me nearly that as didn't much. Bother you? No, what bothered me was that she waits until 11 of the transports have been destroyed to decide to kamikaze. Well, you're supposed to think that she just, the idea just didn't occur to her until then. I, I just don't accept that. <laughs> I just don't accept that like someone who's supposed to be this military mastermind wouldn't realize that her big, massive cruiser was in a position to wreck that kind of havoc on the fleet. Well, of course, and of course, the answer to all this is because drama, because plot. Um, I loved that scene, and I especially like the aesthetics of how they depicted it. Yes. So the way it the went silence. silent. By the way, did you see this thing? Like the, there was a movie theater that actually started warning everybody that like there's a scene and out. Like you know, dear, dear, what, dear, you know, uh, uh, patrons, right? Um, in, there's an intentional scene an hour and forty minutes into the movie, right, where there's no sound. I think having having seen it and not had, having any difficulty deciphering know, that this was purposeful. Are people really that's that kind dumb? Of, that's ridiculous. All right. Um, should, we keep, should I keep telling you all the things yeah, that bother no, me I'm, about the, the storyline? I mostly line? disagreed, but keep going. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think. What else? So, so there were, I, I'm trying to go in order here because, 
I'm not even going to talk about Leia floating through space. Um, the Mary Poppins, the now infamous Mary Poppins. Right. Um, force projecting, right? I have two problems with the force projection, all right? Problem number one, Yoda, okay? I love my little green man. Weird Al Yankovic song, Yoda, is still my favorite Weird Al Yankovic song of all time. To you the know, tune of Lola? To the tune of Lola. Um, if it is physically possible for a force ghost to create a physical event in the real world, as Yoda does when he brings lightning down on the Jedi Temple on Octo, or whatever the hell you, yeah. however, whatever you call it, right? Why haven't we seen that in any of the first seven movies? Might have been super helpful at various points, especially in episodes four, five, and six, for, oh, I don't know, Ghost Ben Kenobi to cause kinetic effects in the real world. Yeah, yeah, I did. I agree with you. I didn't like the idea that, that the departed Jedi Masters can actually have that sort of effect. It's one thing to have someone appear in what may right. be entirely in the mind of a of, vision. Yeah, and speaking wisdom, it could be you talking to yourself. Yeah, but to actually have him show up and and, and create lightning. Yeah, yeah, I didn't like that either. I mean, come on, man. All yeah. right, problem number two. Um, if you can force project your way halfway across the universe, as Luke Skywalker successfully does for however long of the whole scene on the salt planet, why haven't we seen more of that in the first seven episodes? I think you're, I think you're supposed to think that is top tier. Almost no one's ever been able to do this, and it killed him, right? It's, yeah. It was the last of his life to do it. So I think you're supposed to think that was just the degree of mastery he'd reached. Uh, and so we and so what? Darth Vader never reached that level of mastery? Right, yeah. Come on. Why not? Because Darth Vader is supposed to be like, Anakin's supposed to be like the greatest Jedi of all time. Yeah, but he was the dark side. All right, that's at least a plausible <laughs> defense. I, I don't yeah. buy it, but at least I, at least I, I thought of... it was a great innovation. And the moment when you realize what's going on is absolutely wonderful. Yes. This goes to the other big theme, which I also liked a whole bunch. Yeah. So, and again, they don't trust us to figure these themes out for ourselves. <laughs> so once again, they have some of the characters say it directly yeah. to us. Uh, you know, the greatest teacher failure is. So obviously, <laughs> along with kill the past or, or learn how to live with the past. Right. Let me let me go back real quick. The, the, it's not just kill the past, right? It's learn smartly from the past. That dovetails nicely with the other major theme of failure is itself a great teacher. Um, they make Yoda say it in case we missed it, but every single one of the characters is ritually put through their plot-driven paces to show them with some kind of painful failure, which they very quickly mature from, um, except, of course, uh, Ben Solo's the one who, who isn't learning from his past mistakes. But that's Luke's redemption arc. And actually, so I'm curious what you think. I like the way Luke was handled. At first, I was... I was bothered to see this sort of uh, this suggestion that that our childhood hero, you know, spent decades in you know rejection of his own past accomplishments and what he'd stood for, and, and that seemed unsettling. But I liked the way he came around. I loved the way he came around at the end. In fact, I especially liked it that they have him very clearly and purposefully say, you know, he rejected himself as a legend. Right. But the way that you actually succeed is to create a whole new legend. And, and and there's nothing I think more brilliant in the entire movie than the brief little vignette at the end, which in many ways I didn't like with the, the showing the all the inspired kids. Yeah. But one thing I loved, a kid playing with what amounted to a homemade Luke Skywalker action figure. Yeah. And that that's the legend's effect. It's the inspiration of a new yeah. generation. Yeah. I love that. Now, there is a plot point problem with <laughs> it, though. Also, How does right. anyone know? Right. That this even occurred. Right. It would have been so easy if they just is there said, like, is there, is hey, there like Star Wars Twitter? Luke's going out there. R2, broadcast this. Right. Stream it to our allies right. in right. the outer rim. To live tweet it. Right. Um, so so I've, 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 
I have two more problems, and I'm going to tell you why I actually ended up liking the movie. But, right. but I want to fight with two more problems first. Um, problem number one, um, the tactics of the, of the First Order army. Right, like so. There's a great moment in one of the Austin Powers. <laughs> the pickets movies. charge. Right, so there's a great moment in one of the Austin Powers movies, right, where there's like a steamroller coming towards yeah, the bad yeah, guy, yeah. and it's like 15 minutes away. It's like, oh no! Yeah. Right, there's just you know, how could you get to the kind of power that they apparently have in the universe with such one-dimensional offensive strategy, right? It's like, oh, they're over there. Let's all proceed in a direct line toward them. And even better, let's stop and wait to see if we can, like, wait. The- you have the manpower. You have the resources. You have stormtroopers. Like, what, you know, what are you waiting for? If they have Star Destroyers, they can shoot down at the planet. Right. You can crash just a Star Destroyer. Just Qu- wait them out. Crash a Star No, don't wait them out. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, you have the numbers. Go. They don't have any bunker busters, apparently. You couldn't crash a Star Destroyer into the base? I mean, come on. Because, With the, the Death Star tech? Because plot. Because plot. All right, so here's my Stylized, last... Stylized right. violence. And here's and my, by the way, the aesthetics of the white and red on the salt planet. Very nice. Fine. Again, a ripoff from Star Wars. Uh, Star Trek. Um, which had the white and yellow, right? From the... And, okay, anyway. Remember, you don't remember the red salt planet from the second Star Wars movie? The Star Trek Star movie? Trek? Second like, new Star Trek movie? Star, it, it could have been Star Trek 2. It could have been Wrath of Khan. No, no, I mean the second new one. Oh, uh, oh uh, I'm not Star, sure I Star saw Trek that. Into Darkness. That's yeah, outside my scope. All right. So, so last thing I'm going to say that bothered me nuts about this movie. I love BB-8 as much as the next guy, but come the F on. What? They escape from the Dreadnought because BB-8... Like, oh, I thought that was great. BB-8 flies a ship. Like BB-8, like commit commandeers an uh, an AT-AT attack walker. That was the only part of the Rosenfin's excellent adventure that I didn't mind so. Oh, much. don't get me started about Rosenfin's excellent adventure. I'm I, not even going there. I liked Rose as a character. Of course, I especially liked the way I thought the whole introductory scene where she ends up tasing him is, yeah. is awesome. Totally, I mean, really great. Fine. Um, but what they then decided to do, okay, so you wait, you're telling me you have this ability to go light speed, to go in and out of the chase. Right. Maybe y'all should get General Organa and get her out of there Hello. to a safe location. In fact, how many pods did you have on all those ships? Right. Maybe you can get most of y'all out of there. But plot. But plot. And BB-8, I mean, like, where would that movie be without BB-8 to save everybody? Okay, what did you think about, Help speaking me, of another element of Rose and Finn's excellent adventure, I really didn't like the ham-handedness of the... The plutocrat arms yeah. dealers who have their casino <laughs> planet where they, they can't help but whip the, the, the horse rabbits for no reason and be mean to the kids. It just was so over the top. I, I appreciate that this is a uh, an overall Manichaean black and white universe of, of very right. clear but good, that was a very clear bad. It, I, I thought it was interesting that they tried to introduce this theme of the arms dealers right. and how they, of course, where do, where do they all get their equipment? But they, I think they cartoonishly interjected this element in a way that I felt like was sort of a nod towards, you know, the one accepted bad guy in all, you know, current major right. movies, which is, you know, corporate. Right. Corporate's right. bad. Right. Corporate bad, resistance good. Yep. So all that said, I liked it. Oh, I loved it. As you can see, I actually liked it on but, more levels than you did. But, but the problem is, here's my biggest problem with the movie. Like, everything I liked about the movie were the parts I didn't think about. Right, like, like the the visceral gut reaction to the movie was, "Damn, that was amazing!" And every single sort of 
you know, iota of brain power I devote to thinking about the movie, I only get frustrated. Yeah, that's where we differ. I, I enjoyed it at both levels. And I liked the themes. Um, I thought, of course, there's a certain um, emotional weight where all the scenes of Carrie Fisher, um, but they added, not setting aside the Mary Poppins, yeah. but the, the deal at the end where she's transferring, she's given up authority to Poe, and, you know, I thought she did a fine job. And I thought Luke's, uh, you know, manifestation visiting her and handing yeah. her the dice. Right, the dice. That was, that was ah, great. Dice. But I thought, uh, you know, real quick, I thought Kylo Ren was was really well done. Oh, I thought Adam Driver thought was much better in this movie than in yeah. than in Force Awakens. Well, they, they they let him be more changed. Yes. And and I gotta say the fight scene, as yeah. stylized as it was, no, no, no. Listen, I could watch that all day long. It was it was really it's like the, it was really 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 pretty. It was like the Matrix, yeah. right? I yeah, just, it was. I just don't believe it. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. Well, and I, I sure I guess I, I sure I'm glad they just didn't even try to tell us what Snoke was all about. I just got rid of that guy. <laughs> Can we please just move on? Oh, one final thing. Um, the sibling rivalry between the uh, is it Hoxa General Hux 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 who I couldn't stand in the first film yeah. is such a one dimensional boring character. They let him have a little bit of fun with bit. some. He, he he got some smirks in. It was pretty funny when when he has finally you know he's in trouble with their dad. He he gets called into the chamber, but he has this whole unexplained bit about how were they following the the, the fleet. And he's walking out as Ben Solo's walking in. He smirks at him. It was it was so brotherly. I enjoyed that quite. Yeah, a bit. but he's a he's a he's a piss poor military strategist. That Hux. Yeah, it's kind of hard to see how that kid got to be a general. Yeah. By the way, who what, made this man a general? What are we supposed to think was going on with this mystery ability to track through hyperspace? I mean, was that just was that just tech talk? Well, no. So so this was actually someone pointed this out on Twitter. Um, this was a really really well done uh, cross movie market uh, 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 plot plot development point when um, what's her name in in Rogue One right uh-huh, yeah. who's the who's the hero um, uh, if you had to ask not Ray but the other one yeah yeah anyway um, her right um, uh, da, 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 the the arms guy his name okay anyway whatever. Um, so when they're going through the list of programs trying to find the Death Star plans, Yo, yeah, yeah. they go past hyperspace tracking. No way. Uh-huh. Oh, that's excellent. So Nicely done. I think that was sort of planting seeds and letting them come home to roost. Yet another reason to think that Rogue One was an awesome movie. But I got to oh, say, Rogue One fantastic. Uh, Last Jedi is, you know, it's, it's not top three or top four, but it's very solidly in the, in the upper half for me. So, so I, I, would, I think Rogue One was better. Um, oh yeah, yeah, right. Last Jedi might have been prettier, but Rogue One was better. Yeah. It was more coherent. Oh, had, yeah. Like I, I right. Yeah. Um, so I would say for me, Last Jedi is maybe fourth or fifth. Yeah, better than Force Awakens. Oh, yeah. much. Yeah, but Big but 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 also not, f- deeply flawed. Oh, last thing, and then we'll close it. Uh, how are they going to handle thing. Carrie Fisher's death? I'm projecting that during the opening scroll, it'll open with you know something about you know a growing spate of rebellions breaking out all over the galaxy, in in now inspired by the by these tragic deaths, right, some of, martyrization. Yeah, yeah. They'll, yeah. they'll they'll just kind of handle it that way. I I assume so. I, I hope they don't go the, the the Grand Moff Tarkin. Yeah, yeah. Please don't like, do that approach. All right. Well, on that note, uh, this was our longest episode ever. <laughs> Yay, it's a new Whoops. record. Um, maybe that means we should stop. So stay safe out there, everybody. Adios. <laughs>